Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Who goes there? That's the title of Ultraman's 31st episode and the question that drives the story. After a 20-year absence, SSSP member Goto has returned to Japan, but his eccentricities, along with a handful of small physical anomalies and his knowledge of Science Patrol trade secrets, lead the team to suspect that there's something strange afoot. Their attention, however, is quickly diverted by the spontaneous appearance of quickly growing large plants throughout Tokyo. In their investigation, they learn of a carnivorous, bipedal, blood-sucking plant discovered 20 years ago by, wait for it, Goto's father. Meanwhile, Fuji is caught snooping around in Goto's guest room by a suit-wearing plant monster and is promptly zapped by the creature's eye beams. Following up, Hayata discovers a plant wriggling around in Goto's luggage and by taking a sample to Professor Ninamiya, confirms that Goto has the vampire plant Caronia in his possession. But to be more precise, Caronia is possessing Goto. And being thwarted in his attempt to murder the professor, grows to enormous size, stating its intent to replace all humans on Earth. With a wave of Caronian airships on the way, only the Science Patrol and Ultraman can prevent botanical Armageddon. After the supernatural flavor of the previous week's episode, Who Goes There swerves back into straight-ahead science fiction, featuring far-flung discoveries, scientific experts in laboratories, and an alien invasion of sorts. Ultraman's scenes are enhanced by one of his more dramatic transformations and the use of a new explosive beam. And taking center stage is a classic It's That Guy actor, Hiro-O Kirino, in the role of Goto. Kirino can be spotted in plenty of Showa-era Toho classics, such as Invasion of Astro Monster, The H-Man, and Destroy All Monsters. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Mansky reporting. centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend, the legend of the cat people, women whose kiss means death, whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. Twice I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. It's shut, Al. Just a minute ago, it was open. Clark. Leave us, Irena. Listen. Do you hear? It's coming back. 
turning the screen into a buzzing, crawling, creeping nightmare of terror. This is the son of the original fly, daring to explore the forbidden science of transmigration that brought horrible death to his father. You look as if you've just seen a ghost, old man. It was the fly. Fear that will fasten its choking grip on you as his weird experiments spawn the twisted monstrosities of a living hell. The rat man whose hands and feet are changed to paws. The living corpse who rose from his coffin. And the return of the fly, seeking revenge with a thousand eyes. Smashing anything that stands in his way. Suppose he does come here. What if Philippe does not have the mind of a human, but the murderous brain of the fly? Then he will have to be destroyed. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print, or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com, and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Welcome to episode number 548 of the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio, and Derek is still, yes, still, unpacking and settling in. So he told me to handle this week's introduction. I'm one of the monsters in the machine, and this week, we opened with another ultra-cool beta capsule review from our friend Mark Matsky. Here in a moment, you'll hear fellow podcaster Steve Turk pitching in again, and this time he's joined by Jeff Owens. What movie will they talk about this week? The Atomic Submarine from 1959. You want to hear a secret? Derek has never seen that film, so it's probably just as well that he's not here this week. Yeah. That's the real reason Derek isn't here this week. It's not because the other monsters in the machine and I took over his new place in Vancouver, and have him tied up in a closet or anything. I mean, that would be crazy, right? Never mind. Make sure you drop by the website at www.monsterkidradio.net to keep up to date with the podcast, 
this week's show notes, and the Amazon affiliate links you can use to help pay the ransom we have set to release Derek from his, um, again. Never mind. But please use the Amazon affiliate links. That really helps out. Also, this weekend in the Monster Kid Movie Club at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio it's another film noir week. On Saturday, November 20th, at noon Pacific, nothing but cool film noir movies all day long. At 11 a.m. Pacific is a pre-show by Scott Morris, and you don't want to miss that either. Okay, well, I think that's it. I need to go check on the prisoner, I mean, the popcorn, so let's roll into the conversation about the atomic submarine with Steve from the Die Cast Movie Podcast and Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club right now. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky von Helsing. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Monster Kid Radio. Yes, I know, like the last episode that I did, this is not Derek's melodious voice, it's mine, I'm sorry for that, everybody has to hear my voice again, but as you know, Derek is still in the midst of the move, and getting acclimated to his new job, and I'm trying to help him out with doing an episode for him again, and this time I'm joined by the one and only Jeff Owens of the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. Jeff, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Steve. How are you doing? The Joan Rivers of podcasting. Now, this is really going to date me, but Joan Rivers, I believe, was Johnny Carson's most frequent guest host. So you, sir, are the Joan Rivers of podcasting. Well, I've been called worse. (laughs) (laughs) And Joan Rivers obviously was a comedic talent, um, you know, up there in the upper echelon. I mean, it all depends on who you're looking at, but she was just awesome. I remember seeing some of her um, performances on YouTube and different things like that. So yes. And there, um, but yeah, Joan Rivers. Yeah, Believe I, me, I meant it as nothing other than a compliment. I thought you meant I need plastic surgery, but <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff, you not only do the classic cars club podcast, but you also are a writer that's been in various publications. What publications have you been in? Well, I am associated with the We Belong Dead group. They are in England, and they publish We Belong Dead magazine, as well as a series of books, not necessarily on a regular schedule. But my first one for them was called Unsung Horrors. And then I've been pretty much involved, had one or two things in each of their publications since then. 
They've done a book on Peter Cushing. I, I don't remember what else at this time. I think that you were also in one with Vincent Price. And yes, yes, yes. I knew there was another one like that. Yep. And they've got a couple coming out. The They're doing a sci-fi uh, book, Spotlight on Science Fiction. I've got a couple in that. And then there's some down the road, actually, two more I've written for that aren't on a publishing schedule yet. So I, I think this is one of the good things, if there can be any that came out of COVID, was the editor, Eric McNaughton. He is a tour guide by trade. and you know, there were no tours for at least a year and a half. I don't even know if he's gone back yet. So he really started pumping out the publications and uh, I love being a part of those. And you're, and I've read some of the, some of the stuff from we belong dead and it, it's really good. It's almost a shame that you're not another work also, uh, but also people can follow you for free on your blog, which you talk about different movies. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about your blog and where people could find it. Oh, sure. I'll always do that. It, it's classichorrors.club, and we've just come through the countdown to Halloween. I've done this every year since I started. Every day I was watching a new movie off my DVR trying to clear it out. I think by the time I was done, I broke even. I had recorded enough new things that I didn't really gain any space. But during that time, I got in the habit, and I have continued it through November. I'm doing Nashy November, so almost every day I'm uh, writing about another Paul Nashie movie. And that coincides with our podcast with Rich Chamberlain and I, the Classic Horrors Club podcast, where there it is also Nashie November, and we talk about three of Nashie's movies. And for listeners, that episode will be out by the time you hear this episode, so seek it out, because they you put an episode out once a month, and you and Rich um, do excellent work every time with your research and your love of those classic horror films. And I find it nice when you, you do a theme with your different shows, and sometimes you'll have a, a theme by an actor. Sometimes you do drive-in themes and so on. And uh, I, I, there's some really good episodes there. I really enjoy your Lionel Adwell episode and times where you take a more of a deep dive into a particular actor. Yeah, thank you. And I will say that in January, it's our five-year anniversary. And speaking of themes, we're trying to come up with something to do that will be a little special we usually do three movies. We found two horror movies with the word five in the title. If anyone knows a third, that's a possible theme that we'll do, you know, horror movies with five in the title. Uh, failing that, I, I'm not sure what. Uh, we put a call out for ideas and suggestions, so I'll uh, issue that call here as well. If anyone has any ideas, let us know. We'd like to celebrate five years. I don't know that I ever thought we'd still be doing it in five years. Well, here's the five more years and so on, you know, and that kind of stuff. Because as long as you and Rich are enjoying yourself, which I believe you both are, there's no reason to stop doing things that you love to do. Now, something, I speaking agree. of five, interesting enough that you brought that up. <laughs> oh, was that segue planned? I didn't intend it. Well, you got to go where the material takes you. So, <laughs> Jeff, it's time for the classic five. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, let me get a little shuffle. All those years of playing poker in college and having to pay to get the money to pay for the books is paying off for this stuff. I sound, ah, it's like great to get that little trickle to deck. So, Jeff, question number one. What is your favorite big bug monster movie? What is your favorite big bug monster movie? I think Tarantula. 
I'll go with that. I like it because it's not just a big bug movie. That's a big part of it. That's what everyone thinks. But there's also a side story with a mad scientist in the lab, a deformed creature. I, I really like that one. It's a little different than most big bug movies. I enjoyed Tarantula also. And I know you guys did that during this past summer in your one of your drive-in themes when you did giant monster giant, giant monster movies. Yes. Uh, here's a good question. Number two, what prop from a classic monster movie would you like to own? What prop from a classic monster movie would you like to own? And again, there's no wrong answers with this, Jeff. It's whatever answer you pick is the right answer because it's your answer. That's right. You can't tell me I'm wrong. Well, I'll go with one I sort of have. Barnabas Collins' Kane. Now, I know that's from TV, Dark Shadows, but you could say it's from the movie House of Dark Shadows. I've always kind of wanted one of those, and they actually put one out a couple years. I think I bought it through MPI Home Video. Very solid, heavy-duty, silver head. They say don't use it as an actual cane, that it can't support the weight. So, you know, I've just got it kind of hung up in my Dark Shadows corner, and that. I also, the, the reason I hesitate is I've always kind of wanted the Wolfman's cane or Larry Talbot's cane. And there actually is one on sale now, I think, from Factory Entertainment. But uh, I think one cane is enough for me. I don't want to herald a day maybe when I'm having to actually use a cane, you know, by collecting them in advance. But uh, yeah, I think I, they both are just so, I like the way they look, the artistry and the handle, and uh, they make those unique. Ah, question number three. What classic monster movie needs a comic book adaption? This is a good one for you. What classic monster movie needs a comic book adaption? Because you also do a comic books um, on your... Yeah. Yeah, I've got a side gig DC Comics guy where I do some of the my favorite characters. I've been following their, for comic geeks, Crisis on Infinite Earth in DC, in the DC universe. Also, stories before then with some of these characters i'm doing a clip so right now and that's a lot, a lot of fun if anyone's watching star girl which is a great show eclipso is the villain this season so that's kind of why i did that so people could read about the origins of that character uh so did i buy enough time to think about an answer to this you know almost any because i do love adaptations of comics, all the old Dell comics that did the Vincent Price movies, and they're, speaking of Paul Nashi, there's even some Paul Nashi comics from a small independent publisher. I wish I could remember the name, but uh, I've got those stacked up to look at. Oh, gosh. I know so many monsters. Colorful <laughs> with a lot of action. Probably a Hammer film. There was a series of Hammer comics. They did Captain Kronos. They did a spinoff of The Mummy. Oh, let's say Curse of Frankenstein. So, a ha so I don't know why. <laughs> so if they would have continued to hammer comics, you would have liked them to go into the Frankenstein mythos. Yeah, actually, they may have done that before in the House of Horror magazine in England back in the 70s or 80s. I'm not sure. They did many adaptations, and the art on those were fantastic. They looked like they were – They I. I wouldn't compare them in texture or depth to Mark Maddox, but in the them resembling the actual actors and characters, they really looked good. So that's probably already been done, but still a full-fledged story in five or six issues that tells the whole movie, I think. Let's say Curse of Frankenstein. I'd buy that. I would buy that, too, because I got both those Hammer ones you talked about, the 
Captain Crone is in the mommy one, and, and I enjoy them. They have different takes on the properties, and I like the, the Captain Cronus because it's a continuation of the mythos. And that one, I believe, is a, is a story for a franchise that should have continued on more than the one movie. It was, it was just begging for multiple episodes. Right. All right, question number four. What character from a classic monster movie would you want as an action figure? What character from a classic monster movie would you want as an action figure? I think I've been asked this before. You know, this is another thing that I actually have, what I want, and that is the monster from It's the Terror from Outer Space. But as for another one, well, how about the monster from the Atomic Submarine? That'd be a pretty cool action figure. That definitely would be, especially if you had it with the um, the, the background, like the like the um, the setting of what it was in. Or, and it, may I give another one? Sure. So I know they have this and I just got to see Godzilla versus Hedera on the big screen and it's the what 50th anniversary or something of that movie. And so they're putting out all kinds of Hedera merchandise, but it's just out of my price range. But I would like a little Hedera. It was not at all like I remember it from seeing it as a kid at the drive-in. It was a really cool monster. I liked it. And so just have a little Hedera sitting by me. That'd be kind of fun. As long as it stays a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to make sure I I keep my toxic waste and pollution away from it. And knowing our luck, your cat would do us all in by knocking something over on it, and that would be the end of the world. Right. The final question, and I will admit to this one, I cherry-picked this one out because of an episode that you did on my show. Um, what classic monster movie should be turned into a musical? <laughs> What classic monster movie should be turned into a musical? I could see the Wolfman with Larry Talbot's torture that he's going through, his tortured soul. I can hear him singing about that, really expressing how he feels, how he wants to die. And maybe that wouldn't be the Wolfman. One of the Wolfman movies, I, I think maybe he expresses that even more in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, how he wants to, that kind of became his thing in all the subsequent movies. But one of the, the Wolfman movies based on, one of those where he's got to just seeing about how he wants to die. I could see that. Hey, that, that would, I could see it. Cause it'd be a tragedy, especially if you developed a love story, a lot, you know, a lot more in the uh, musical and then have that pathos in the end. Yeah, it'd be a good movie. I think it would work, but Hey, don't matter what yeah. I think it's your picks your answers are always <laughs> right. <laughs> so you say, so you say, don't matter what other people think it's your, it's your answers. So you aced the quest. You aced it. You got all five questions right. What can you say? You couldn't miss all them right. anyway. This is the exciting story of the future when America's fleet of atomic submarines begins a desperate search for an unknown enemy whose destruction of polar shipping has the nation's back against the wall. See the mysterious blasting of an atomic sub by this dreadful unseen adversary. The USS Tiger Shark, our last hope. See it fire an intercontinental ballistics missile from under the ice at the North Pole. Interesting, I thought, when you brought up We Belong Dead, that one of the issues coming out is a sci-fi-centric issue, you said. And, of course, 
You picked the movie, The Atomic Submarine from 1959, which I would say is a sci-fi movie. And, and I thought that, you know, it's a nice tie-in. You, just, you were just working on that, and that's coming out soon, and we got a sci-fi movie about it. So what led you to pick The Atomic Submarine? Well, I can't remember why I originally watched it, but I do remember thinking this is not what I thought it was going to be. I'm, I was sure it was sci-fi, and I'm sure it was, you know, a submarine under the water. I had no idea it had anything to do with UFOs or aliens or a fantastic monster. And I've always had that in the back of my mind for Monster Kid Radio because it has an actual monster. And I don't think many people know about this movie. I think I saw the monster and I recognized it from a magazine or book or something, and I didn't associate it with this movie. So I just thought it was really cool that I discovered it. I think it's a good, solid movie, and I thought it would be a great one to talk about. You had not heard of it, so that tends to prove my theory that maybe it was a good choice. I think it was a good choice. I mean, I never heard of the movie at all, and then you're, you're and I was like, okay, it's science fiction. I We'll go away. when we checked with Derek and Derek said, Hey, go for it. So we, we were do we did it and are doing it. <laughs> and, uh, I, I enjoy science fiction a lot. So anytime I get a, a crossover with science fiction and a monster movie, it always works for me. And, uh, so I'm, I'm an, I'm an easy win for those types of movies. Cause growing up watching the sci-fi every, every Saturday, there'd be the sci-fi movie of the week, you know, on the, on at like two o'clock in the afternoon, it was like ah, sci-fi channel and you just enjoyed it. 52 different movies, you know, each year. And then of course it'd repeat a lot from year to year, but it was nice to get to see those different ones. But somehow I kept missing this one, but you got the, you own the criterion version. Yes. It's on a, in a criterion box set with four other movies, three other movies, a total of four. Uh, of course, none of others, which I will remember at this point. I'm not usually a hardcore sci-fi guy unless there's a monster. So this one really fits uh, into something I like and that I thought the listeners would like. I think so too. And for listeners, it's also available on YouTube, at least currently. You never know these things switch around. So, I mean, so if you want to watch it, it's, I think it was like an hour and 19 minutes. I don't think it was that long. It's like an hour and 12, I believe. Well, yeah, somewhere in that front. So it's a little, you know, 70, 80 minutes long. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a short watch. It doesn't take that long to get into what it's doing. It moves. It's, it's typical of the movies of the fifties. You know, it's black and white has the narration has the maps with the little lines going through where they're all going and that kind of stuff. That cracked me up because that map, they just kept drawing on it. And by the time they were done, it looked like a big Christmas bow, you know, with so many lines crossing over and wrapped up amongst each other. Uh, it makes sense, though, in the plot. I guess I guess I didn't imagine they would keep writing on the same map. I thought maybe they would use a different one, but no. And, and that is one element of this that make it reminds me a lot of the giant claw, not monster-wide, just the way the movie feels. I mean, there's the narrator, the, the sense of humor that the characters have. that's just a little bit too corny, but it's really, it just fits. It works. The, the camaraderie that the, the characters have, it resembles the final claw to me. It also reminded me of Destination Interspace, which I know that Derek did do on the show. That's similar. They're underwater. They're going to a, I think maybe a spacecraft, something. 
I kind of had them mixed up a little bit. I think it's in that one. The, the little miniature sub goes back and forth, back and forth several times. And I was afraid that was this movie. And it wasn't. This movie moves very quickly. It, there's, if you, I watched it with the commentary. And when I'm doing that, I'm focused on what they're saying and just kind of looking at the pictures but not really telling what's going on. And there were a lot of scenes of people sitting around talking. And so when I watched it again, without the commentary, I thought, oh, this is going to be talkier than I remembered. But it is not. It, anything they talk about is you know, high level, important to the story. Let's move on. And uh, it, it moves very quickly. Oh, it does. And I like the pacing of it. And I like the way there's certain things that were, to me, predictable. You know, with like the turn to movies of this genre, there's certain tropes or people that are put in. A one character says the classic line, "Oh yes, um, he's he's married, has three kids. They 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 took them all off leave, and he's like, oh, tomorrow's my the next day is my daughter's birthday. She's gonna be upset, and I'm thinking right away, he's goner. He's a goner because it's any any <laughs> war movie, science fiction movie, horror movie. You always know that guy's a goner, and I was right. You know, it was like dead on it and. But then there was another. There were some other characters that felt certain things were going to happen to them, and they didn't go that way. So there was some things that did not lead to where I would normally think. And, and there was a couple of guys I knew that were red shirts, even though they weren't wearing red shirts. I just knew it. You know, it, something with something bad was going to happen to them. And boy, did they really suffer in the in the end of the movie. Yeah, they did. <laughs> but if, if you well, could, you want to, I was going to say, if you want to give a little synopsis of what the movie's about. Yeah. I was just going to say, let's kind of go through the plot. So this, the movie comes hot off the heels of the introduction of the atomic submarine in real life in August of 1958. The first nuclear submarine, the Nautilus, uh, went on its first trip at the North Pole. The producer of this film, Alex Gordon, took advantage of the headlines. And it wasn't a week after the, the ship got back that he registered the title, the atomic submarine for this movie. And it is about a topic submarine sent to investigate a series of disasters that have been happening around the North Pole. And that they pull the crew together, they get on the ship, they don't tell them until they are in open water, you know, what their mission is. And I just said it, their mission is very simple to investigate these disasters that have happened. So then it gets really, I think, an interesting concept because it is basically, you know, a, an alien UFO movie, but it, the idea is that instead of trying to rule the world from out in space up in the sky, they're doing it from the water in the ocean. And that makes it pretty unique. So they do discover the ship. They track its pattern. They decide to head it off at the pass and try to stop it. They take a little mini sub, the lungfish from the submarine to the spacecraft, oh, which they stopped, by the way, by ramming it because it is able to avoid the missiles that they fired at it. Get into the ship. Luckily, it has oxygen so they can don't have to take all their equipment with them. Come face to face with an alien. Learn what the plan is. And are, do, are we going to do spoilers? Well, I think we might, we might as well. And Derek will put the spoiler warning up for people with the count, I'm sure. <laughs> all right. So the... the, the Alien's plan is to, he's been scouting locations for the, his race to colonize. And as it usually is, Earth is a fantastic place for 
them to colonize. So he's collected everything he wants. It wants going to take off, go home and report what he's found. So they need to stop this ship from taking off. They call it the Cyclops, by the way, because it's your traditional 1950s saucer, but it has one little knob at the top with a sort of an eye. It does look like Cyclops. So they race against time, modify one of their missiles so that it will basically home in on the spaceship when it takes off. And sure enough, it explodes in the sky, falls back into the ocean, and they've saved the day. And I thought what was interesting is that the alien says how it's one to hundreds of planets, and it, and it found this one to be the best. They're an aquatic species, and it makes sense that the Earth would be something that they would want to go to because it's mostly water. <laughs> so, and I guess and they, get, they powered her ship with the mag, with um, the magnetic energy that they do. And that's why they were From based, the pole. that's why they're based around the North pole. So they're probably, he's probably thinking, Oh, this is the perfect place. We can power our stuff. We got this and that, uh, everybody, all these other life forms that are intelligent, so to speak, are on land. We can easily control them and that kind of stuff. And, and those kind of things. But I thought was very interesting is that the ship is organic. And that means it can, well, that doesn't in and of itself mean, but it can also heal itself uh, very quickly. So there's little they can do to stop it. And so can the alien, the alien can self heal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess let's talk about the alien. So this is a, also a Cyclops. It's one big eyeball on the top of this like leafy stalk thing. I think at the bottom, there's some tentacles. The bottom of the, of the monster reminds me of that Simpsons alien that walks around on the tentacles that are, you know, his feet, not nearly as uh, elaborate as that. They, you know, don't, don't have quite the animation, but I don't think it's bad at all. And it was interesting on the commentary, the producer Alex Gordon was talking about this monster and it was basically a puppet. He said no bigger than from his elbow to the tips of his fingers. And he first saw that and he was like, no, (laughs) we cannot show this. This is awful. Uh, If you're going to film this, I will not be on the set that day. He went to the head of the studio allied artist and, and said that, you know, I'd rather not show the alien than show this thing. And the head of the studio said, Oh no, we got to have an alien. So he trusted its designers who were also producers on the movie and he was impressed with the way it turned out. And I have to say, I agree. I don't think it's bad at all. I think it worked well because it looked like um, a, a cross between, it's hard to put this in example, but it's like a cross between a crustacean and like a shrimp in some parts of its body. And, and of course, like the eye, like a, um, uh, a squid or an octopus where it has the one eye type thing. And, but it also seemed to be, resting on a bed of coral, you know, from my perspective. That's yeah, like, that I didn't was, know what that was. That, yeah. I like that, though. Yeah, I enjoyed it, too. And that's why I think, that's why I look at it as being aquatic. And it could be semi-aquatic. I mean, it's hard to, or amphibious. Um, it, it's hard to say, you know, because it's not like they went into a lot of detail of its, you know, where it's going to survive on and where it's going to live and that kind of area. Obviously, it the, the ship itself inside had breathable atmosphere, and I think that was because it wanted to take humans back with them so they can condition and subjugate, you know, sub- uh-huh. somebody can come yeah. back. So I think that's why the atmosphere was good because they, by using his telepathy, he was able to pick up like which humans would be. 
why he fought Lieutenant Commander Holloway would be a good one to take. I don't really know. <laughs> I would have thought he would have well, went maybe they with Doctor Nielsen. To, uh, maybe their women can't bear children anymore, and they need someone to fertilize them. I don't know because he was quite the ladies' man. That is true. He always carried his black book with him everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, is kind of interesting because that's how we're, by listeners, that's how we're introduced to Lieutenant Commander Holloway, played by Arthur Franz, as as he's making the moves on a person with his good friend, um, Lieutenant David Myborn, Meborn, played by Paul Dubar, Debeve, Debove. <laughs> you keep trying that way. I don't have to butcher them. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, somebody's got no, to do I don't it. know how that one's pronounced. Paul Dubov, maybe? D-U-B-O-V. Listeners, you can tell us what it was supposed to be. We, if we butchered it, we're sorry. But he's the one who has the, the wife and the three kids. And as I said, once you learn that, anybody that's familiar with these films, you know he's predestined to die. I mean, it's just it's it's just a matter of how and when is it going to happen. But I would have thought. And this is the only, well, go this ahead. Is the only scene we see any women at all. Yep. We see his wife, uh, Helen Milburn, played by Jean Moorhead, and then the bleach blonde that uh, Holloway has gotten a date with named Julie. She doesn't even have a last name. She doesn't need one because she's so pretty. Her actress name was Joy Lansing. And this is an interesting story I learned on the commentary. That was Frank Sinatra's girlfriend at the time. Oh. And she was put in this movie as a favor to the William Morris talent agency. And it worked out in favor for the producer, Alex Gordon, because of some of the people he wanted in the movie that the studio did not want. So he sort of made a trade. Okay. We'll put joy Lansing in the movie. And then he got the people he wanted. Uh, it, it, it's and she's okay. She was in a lot of movies. She was in over a hundred movies. Yeah, well, she's only in it like they're, they're both of them are only in it for that scene, and that's it. So it's it's they're not going to make or break this film. It's I guess it's there. Um, they they both are, are they're both there for eye candy, literally. And then there's nothing really plot wise that's relevant to the movie. It's just more character development as as what's going right. on. So it's interesting. But Arthur Franz, who plays Lieutenant Commander Richard Reef Holloway, which you mentioned <laughs> earlier, he's got. Monster movie cred. Yeah, he does. I mean, Monster on Campus. I'm Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. Uh, those are two I saw right off the bat. Did you, did you notice anything else? Because he has a lot of credits also. Yeah, Flight to Mars, Invaders from Mars. You know, they, uh, Alex Gordon did not want this actor. He wanted, get ready for it, John Agar. But Agar wanted too much money, and he wasn't available. And and I did want to mention earlier, this, of course, was a low-budget film. The studio gave them $135,000, and they had to shoot it in eight days. So, um, yeah, they couldn't afford John Agar. I will say, I think John Agar would have brought more to the role. Because, I, you know, I, being the... This guy did not come off as a ladies' man. I couldn't see where ladies would be fawning over him. Where John Agar, I could see women falling for John Agar. He's one of Derek's patron yeah. saints in this this show. <laughs> yeah, and 
Alex Gordon didn't particularly like Arthur Friends. He apparently was, oh, a little uh, self-interested, I guess. He, he demanded to see the dailies he wanted to see. And Alex Gordon didn't. He, he basically said that there was a studio policy that none of the actors could see the dailies. He was afraid that Arthur Franz would want to reshoot scenes and things like that. And they just didn't have the time or money to do that. However, he was very complimentary. He said that he did do his work. He knew his lines, you know, didn't come to the set drunk or anything that he, I think, still would have preferred to have John Agar. I think maybe we all would have. Yeah, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying he was bad in his performance either. I'm just saying when you have a choice between Arthur Franz or John Agar, I think nine times out of ten, you're going with John Agar. Depends on what the role is calling for. You know, I think nine times out of ten, at least, Agar's your man. <laughs> but it's, it's, I just, I don't know. It was really, it was really enjoyable with the different character. A lot of these actors I'd never really heard of before watching this movie, and it, it, it could be just me. I mean, I've, I've some of the movies that we talked about. I've seen those movies. It just did not dawn on me that that was that same person playing those different roles. Yeah, so this is a very interesting thing. So Alex Gordon and his brother, who I'm forgetting his name, another big Hollywood producer, grew up in England, and they you know, grew up basically in the movie theater, and they knew all of these stars that had been big in silent movies. So when Alex Gordon came to the States and started producing movies, he always wanted to give them jobs. And there were several reasons for this, and I, I just find this fascinating. Number one, they were cheap. He talked, uh, Alex Gordon came from AIP, so he worked with Roger Corman, and he made some movies there. But when he went out on his own and he made this with Allied Artists, he talked about Roger Corman always got the up-and-comers, the people that weren't famous yet, Jack Nicholson and you know whoever else. Whereas Alex Gordon took the people that were famous back in the day, and he did it because they were cheap. He did it because he wanted to show that all of these people that were stars during silent movies could make the transition transition and be in talkies. And not only that, these people that had been big stars were willing to still work and take bit parts. So he always wanted to provide work for them to the extent that there's two actors in these I really didn't know at all, Edmund Cobb and Frank Lactine. They have, they're uncredited as passerbys on the street. And it was basically work that an extra would do. And extras at this time got like $25 a day. And Alex Gordon wanted to pay them full acting price. And in fact, he had to because they were members of the Screen Actors Guild. You know, the studio said, no, no way. Those are bit parts. We're not paying them full salary. So Alex Gordon paid himself out of his pocket just so that he could give two of these actors work. He also had an ulterior motive, I believe, because he said he liked to sit around the set and talk to these actors that he watched growing up and hear the stories they had to tell. So this is very much a people producer. I mean, sometimes producers have a certain aspect of a production that they're sort of known for. Well, I'm getting the impression Alex Gordon, it was definitely the actors. He, he mentioned that he always does his own casting. In fact, his one conflict was allied artists on this movie was, like I mentioned, over the casting. But uh, he, you know, like, he got asked questions about the special effects and this and that. And he's like, didn't know anything about that. But you ask him about the actors, he knew everything. So I think that's kind of cool. A real people person. And I, and I thought it was interesting that 
a couple of the male leads, like Art for Franz and um, Paul Dubov or Dubov or whatever, um, I felt were older than you would normally cast for those roles. And it could be because he saw them back in the older, older days and just, you know, wanted to get them, you know, and that kind of stuff. It was just like, cause they seemed older. I was just like, there's just a little, you know, it's like, you know, the age range where you're accepting certain things. And I'm thinking, eh, you're a little on the far end of that spectrum. Um, yes. But did you possible. notice how they balanced with young, hot men? They've got the two frog men, Frogman Carney and Frogman Powell, played by Richard Tyler and Kenneth Becker, and also Brett Halsey, who was a Dr. Nielsen. young, very attractive man, yes, who has a history. His father was a colleague of Holloway, and this is kind of, I guess, this was 59, so it's kind of predicting what's going to happen in the 60s. This son, Carl Nielsen, started speaking out against the military, and he was, you know, for peace and all that. And that went against his father's life's work. And that really destroyed his father. He was portrayed as a warmonger and he kind of went into seclusion. So Holloway has a grudge against Nielsen. And of course they get stuck on a submarine together. That's how that works. And of course, by the end, they uh, are best buds. I don't know if they're best buddies, but they're definitely, they, they seem to come to more of an understanding, you know, um, that, that, that was to me was an interesting dynamic because this is a 1950s era film and to have somebody be showing the opposite side to, you have, you have basically using the comic book re- referencing dove and Hawk, <laughs> you know, for DC, <laughs> you have the dove right. and Dr. Nielsen and you have the Hawk and Lieutenant commander Holloway and they have a good discussion. It's not really long listeners, but if you listen to it, it's, it's like, it's an ongoing little debate about this. And I thought that was handled rather well. And which actually led me to believe when the alien wanted to take a certain person, like, or certain people, why it would want to take the Hawk and not the dove, because they both were there available for him to have on the ship. Like why he wasn't communicating to Dr. Nielsen or Nielsen to, Hey, come on the ship, use the telepathy on him because he seems to be the one that would be more understanding that the, the part it, it surprised me, you know, when it went that way, because I thought he would have been more at that, that thing. And then showing his thing about resisting that when he found that he was going to try to colonize and just, you know, basically take over humanity. I thought that was going to go with that particular trope. Well, here's the peace loving guy, but realizes, oh no, I have to go to fisticuffs in order to solve this situation. And they didn't go there. And I, I, I enjoyed that because let him stay his character stay in a sense pure because he showed he had the backbone of doing these other things, the proven Lieutenant commander Holloway wrong. Um, and I also thought it was interesting that when he was ha- when Lieutenant Holloway was having a conversation with I'm trying to remember who, what was it? The chief or what one of the, one of the off, one of the other people there about what was wrong between the two of them, what would happen. And he was explaining the background and the other person said, well, did you ever get his point of view? Actually, I think it was Lieutenant Milborn or Myborn, his his good friend. And he said, Did you ever talk to him about his point of view? And he goes, What point of his side? Actually, it was his side. And he goes, What side of that? All he has is the front. He has no back, so he has no side. And right. and they left it as that. But I thought it was just showing that he was only looking at it one viewpoint instead of trying to understand all the sides, which is something that's been going on in society for decades. You know, not, it's not, you know, since the fifties and earlier and all the way up to current times, people are so 
you know, looking at one thing instead of looking at everything. I think maybe, I don't know how far the extent of the uh, psychic powers were for the monster, the alien, because Carl never went into the actual spaceship. So maybe he didn't even know. I don't know. But that's a good point. That That's interesting. Yeah, I want to say about Red Halsey, and I have to do this so that, you know, Derek doesn't regret me appearing on the show. So uh, Brett Halsey, who plays Carl Neeson Jr., he was in Revenge of the Creature, uncredited as Pete. I don't remember him, but I do remember him definitely from Return of the Fly. He was in that. Yeah, I was gonna say, I remember, there's your creature connection. There's your creature connection. I remember Return of the Fly also, and uh, that was interesting. You know, it, it, all these guys – all these actors have some kind of, the main ones have some kind of connection with other horror films or other monster movies. Uh, one we haven't met. Especially Tom Conway. I'm sorry. Especially Tom Conway. He was uh, hooked up with, um, yeah, Val Luton for, he did Cat People, I Walk With a Zombie, Seventh Victim. Those were all Val Luton. And then also, I don't know if you caught this, Steve. This is a little in for you and me. He was uncredited in Waterloo Bridge. Oh, he, uh, I, I'm sure you remember this character voice. So I don't know. Was there a voice in Waterloo bridge? That's who he played. Uh, I'd have to rewatch it to remember it, <laughs> but, a, a, but a James whale classic film that, that you and I talked yep. about, uh, yep. Dick Ferran, who played commander, um, when Windover, Windover, yeah. uh, of course, you start off. The movie starts off basically with him as the first one showing up at the meeting with the scientist and um, that kind of stuff going on, and he's the leader of the crew. And I thought he did a very good job. And I was looking at his credits, and it, and it, it's a good movie, but it came up to my chagrin: the Mummy's Hand. Yeah. And <laughs> listeners that don't know, I was at Monster Bash recently, and they have a new game show, um, Mon- Monster Bash Match. It's like the match game, the old match game show. I got to the final. I beat the contestant I was with, got to the final thing. We had to make your final match. And the question was the mummy's blank. I said hand. And the other person said tomb. And so it was, so it's, when I see the mummy's hand, it's kind of like, yeah, I could have got the big prize, but oh, well, it was fun. It was a fun experience, but that's, you know, when I see the mummy's hand now, I'm always thinking now I could have been somebody. I could have been a winner. Uh, and the funny thing was, Tomb was in my mind also. I was flipping between the two of them. I wasn't sure which one I was going to go with. And for some reason, I figured the other person would put hand, and they probably were thinking, oh, he's going to pick Tomb. And alas, it is what it is. Yeah, I can't keep those straight, that, that Mummy series. I don't know the order. Another interesting thing, and you mentioned this about Dick Foran being pretty good, that is another reason that Alex Gordon cast these particular people. He said they play, they're, they're such sort of iconic character actors that when you see them, you instantly know their role and you don't have to waste any time giving exposition about who they are or what they do. So there's one particular actor that was, uh, he was only in that first scene. I think he was the secretary of state maybe. Yeah. Uh, who is all like, they're like, we couldn't do, you know, he appears in every military movie. You can't, can't do a military movie without him. And the, you know, the military, the, the generals, all of that have played those in other movies. So, it's just their type, and you do. You instantly know everything you need to know about them. I know a lot of people don't want to get um, typecast, 
but there's a lot of character actors that have been typecast and they're happy to be typecast because they constantly get roles because people are looking for that particular person to play that particular type and they get a lot of work where they get it, they come in for a day or two or in this particular case with Dick Ferran for, you know, basically all eight days, I'm sure. I mean, he might not have been there every single day, but he had a bigger part. And you get work because people just automatically recognize you and believe you did. And the beauty of it is people don't remember you because you are that character actor. And then you can go right to the next movie and not carry baggage over from prior movies. Can we talk about the special effects? Let's do it. Cause I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the modeling. Did you have anything else about the actor? No, I enjoyed the modeling work. I thought that was really good with the subs. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously miniatures and, compared to the stock footage that they use, which is not a lot. I have read somewhere that this movie's criticized for the amount of stock footage and the fact that they repeat scenes. I don't think either one of those is the case. I thought it was mixed in really well. Uh, there's one scene on the submarine that is obviously footage from the Navy. Alex Gordon talked about how they got stock footage from the Navy. It's very brief. I don't think it's distracting. It's far worse in other movies. But yeah, those miniatures, they're pretty detailed. One of those submarines even had little like fans on its back fin that were moving. That's, that's good. And there's a shot of we're like riding on the tail of the sub and it's going down sort of this tunnel. There's walls on either side and that looks really good. Uh, I think it's great. How do you, that, you know how they do that underwater effect? I don't think they were really filmed underwater, but you know, the screen shows these like lines that are kind of wavy, kind of foggy to make it look like. It's underwater. I I thought that was well. It was convincing. I think it was. I think it was done well. And what I really liked about it was when you saw the sub. Actually, first when you saw the missiles, the torpedoes approach the UFO, and then the submarine does. It gives you so much an idea because when you a lot of these films, when you see the UFO, it's so small, and this thing was. Huge. I mean, when I saw that torpedo coming next to it, it was it was almost like a splinter coming at you or me, like a big splinter. And then the sub coming at it was almost like a, like a little dog coming after you. You know, it's like oh, it's like it's like an annoyance. And and the scale was done very appropriately to get the idea that this UFO is a really really big ship. <laughs> yeah, and when the submarine rams it and goes inside it, it's just a portion of the ship and i enjoyed the ufo what so about, much i would love to get a model of that one like you know, something like that it, it was really well done yeah and the, the way they showed it sometimes it was like in the shadows and you only saw like the front edge of it that was kind of lit a little bit so it was kind of you know suspenseful before you saw it and then when it's coming towards them when they're waiting for it it's just like a pulsing light that's coming i think it's done really well what do you think about inside the ufo I think they did a fine job doing it. You could tell that there was um, a lower budget, you know, because basically they tur- they turned the lights out in the back or bl- blackened the thing, so you- all you had to do was show ramps and other stuff and um, in order to save a lot of the set design on the money. Uh, so I thought that was done – well, I liked how the doors opened or closed, you know. So they, that, and, and, the iris, yeah. Yep. So it, there were a lot of good things, and I, and I think they maximized their budget, and they leave – other things to your mat. I'd rather you leave it to your mat, the, the, the list, the, not the, the viewer's imagination of what's there, than put something up and you're just like, oh, that is just so cheap looking. <laughs> yeah. And how about the effect of the ray or whatever that kind of melts them? That was pretty good. 
Yeah, I thought I thought it did the job. It the effect the effects worked. It it was pretty much a lighting effect, and I like the special effects where the people that were getting hit by the ray that were in the UFO, uh, one of the frogmen and um, Lieutenant Milborn, when they were getting basically it looked like radiation burns to me. Um, it's hard to tell what is that or is electricity coursing through their body, um, doing it. You, they were showing it and then they would cut away to show like the other, another person reacting or whatever. And you would see more makeup added. You'd see more skin deterioration and things along those lines. And, and I also thought that the effect to the other frogmen when the iris closed on them and it, mm-hmm. they, they, and they, they literally cuts them in half, but you don't see it. You see like a little bit of blood come out of his mouth and he fall and they cut away. But so you don't see a lot, but it's you're just like, oh, that what a way to go. And as melting scenes, they reverse the image somehow. They use the negative, so it's black and white. I think that's a really good effect that's utilized well. We we've got it for Derek's sake. Talk about the music. What did you think of the electrosonic music? Well, considering it's a science fiction movie, uh, that you. I, it's if and again in the fifties, the music falls right in what I'm expecting to hear, and uh, I, I thought it was good. It had that unearthy type sound, you know, and uh, it worked. It worked for me. I don't know if it worked for you, but I know it, it worked for me. I, now, would I buy a soundtrack of it? No, but it does work in the movie. Yeah, Alexander Laszlo was the composer of that electronic score. And yeah, in the credits they say electrosonic music by Alexander Laszlo. Yeah, I think it's a fun movie. I enjoy it. I I was glad to watch it again. I was happy you picked it picked it for me to watch because again, I'd never seen it before. And it's and listeners, it's if you want to own the physical copy, it's it's on the Criterion set. I'm trying to remember it, what the title of that set is. The Monsters and Mad Men. Yeah, Monsters and Mad Men with with a few other movies. Obviously, it has the a commentary track. And um and for those that want to go on the cheap, it's currently on youtube and it is the criterion copy ported over that's how i knew it was on criterion this first thing is like oh this, is like, <laughs> this movie you know you picked i was like oh it must be good it's on criterion you know and so it, it actually upped the level of the, what my expectations would be for it and and i enjoyed that raising to the level because i was like okay this is something i got to focus and pay attention on and, and see where it's going to go where it's going to take me I do want to talk just for a minute about like the legacy of this film. Um, it, it was a, a modest hit. It, it opened in Seattle near Thanksgiving, uh, November 29th, 1959. Oddly, they didn't advertise it as a science fiction movie. They talk on the commentary about how the closest thing that like the press book comes to even you know, mentioning a UFO is saying that they deal with an enemy object. And it was just kind of perplexing why, they didn't, you know, play up the fact that it was sci-fi and that alien and UFOs. Alex Gordon thought it might be because this was the late fifties and the monsters were kind of going out of style. I mean, this was getting ready to have a shift. Even AIP was changing from monsters going into the Edgar Allan Poe and all that. So just kind of an odd time. It, it's just odd to me though, that they wouldn't take advantage of that. And, you know, that kind of, Backs up what I said when I watched this. I had no idea the first time that it was a UFO or a monster movie. Yeah. Right afterwards, not credited to this, but Allied Artists went into bankruptcy. So Alex Gordon lost some money on that. They had made him put up 
of the budget. He had to raise money for that. And he, you know, paying some actors himself and things like that. He just, he didn't end up making any money from it. And later he had to try to sue to get some of the money that was owed to him. Now, supposedly, and I don't know if you saw anything about this, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea came from this idea. Now, I don't know. I, I have a hard time thinking Irwin Allen like saw this and said, oh, I'm going to create Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. There's similar stories. They're both about you know nuclear submarines. That doesn't mean the idea came from this. That, that's a little far-fetched to believe because it's kind of a bottom-of-the-barrel B movie. However... Interestingly, Arthur Franz did guest star on an episode of the TV series Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That was episode 31 of the first season called The Condemned. It aired in 1965. And also supposedly one of the episodes was a remake of this movie. I couldn't find evidence of that. I, I went through all the, the titles. There is an episode from season two called The Monster from Outer Space. I thought, well, maybe. I mean, that kind of fits. It's been so, a while. Since I don't know I, about. That. It's been a while since I watched the series. I've never been. My my one of my sons and I. We watched. We went for the whole series. Oh, I don't know, ten years ago or so, and um, getting it on Netflix DVD. That's right. It's still it's still there, and uh, and watching them and enjoying them. So, I was thinking when you were first saying that about it being influencing Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I can't imagine it influencing the movie, but I can have, I could see where maybe an episode or two would have been from the storyline. Cause I have to, you know, you start to look for storylines, writers that of course might've saw this movie and it's like, Oh, let's take this concept and move it over to here. And so I could see that I could see that happening. Now, whether it did happen or not, I'd have to rewatch the series, you know, and go through it because you said it's always hard to tell titles as to what's going on, but I've, I'm sure they probably did something similar to it, you know, because again, it's a TV series and you're doing multiple seasons. You're going to eventually run into um, a lack of ideas or you hit similar ideas. But I, I agree with you just because both of them involve a summary doesn't mean they both, Oh, this one be got that one. I think that's just people looking at it decades later, but who knows? We're not Erwin Allen. So we don't know where he got his ideas from. Maybe he did see it, but, and it did influence them down the road. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm more inclined to believe that than I believe the story that Alex Gordon tells where he believes James Cameron stole his idea for the abyss because it's about a UFO on the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> so that's a, maybe Alex Gordon had some delusions of grandeur. Maybe I don't know. Or I don't know. Maybe James Cameron saw this movie and, gestated inside him for many years and he made the abyss i don't know well let's put it this way the special effects of the abyss and the special effects of this movie are <laughs> a little different <laughs> yeah he didn't get any ideas for those from from this movie no no i don't think so at all but i mean i mean who's to say what what influences people and whether consciously or subconsciously it's 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 hard to tell it's like it's writers that come up with different material or songs and people are like, well, that song is similar to these other songs. Well, uh, they're bound to be because they're all popular songs that person probably grew up listening to. So it's going to, which influenced them to become an artist. And then, of course, that's going to influence their work. It doesn't mean they're ripping off the prior stuff. It means they're adding to that legacy of that 
genre of music. And same thing with the just genre of film. You know, it's people are going to – there's always so many stories you can tell. And we're at the point, I think, nowadays where it is extremely unlikely you're going to come up with a brand-new concept. It could still happen, but a lot of times it's people taking a prior concept and making it something new and different. But otherwise, I'm, do, you have, do you have anything thing. else you want to add? One last thing, I promise. Last thing. I, I do want to mention the writer, Orville Hampton, because he's got some good horror cred. He wrote Rocket Ship XM, The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, Alligator People, and Underwater City. So, you know, except for Alligator People, I have not seen those other movies. I don't know if you could say they are similar uh, or not, but uh, Alligator People's another sort of wacky idea, for sure. Well, that's true. And also, just because this this um, the screenplay was written doesn't mean they followed it verbatim you know sometimes the directors will say this is this is kind of what we're basing our film off of of course something shot in eight days it usually limits the amount of um freelancing that the director is going to be able or producer is going to be able to do then something took a little longer to film but it's hard to say until you look at the screenplay that was originally written and see how close the movie that was filmed was done that way and of course things might have been filmed and edited out later but I, but right. I, def, but I definitely agree with you. I think I, I enjoyed it. It was a fun flick. There was some use of stock footage, but I, don't, I wasn't taken out of it. Of course, you know, for me, um, that stock footage doesn't bother me nearly as much as it bothers you. You know, when <laughs> we we talked about movies before, like the Deadly Mantis and that kind of stuff, it it, it doesn't right. really doesn't really affect me as much as it does other people. Jeff, I want to thank you for helping out with this episode, you know, helping me with get uh, an episode out for Derek on monster kid radio. And like, like I said, the last time I helped out Derek, Derek, you lit the fire. We come, we answer the call. We were here for you. And um, Jeff, I hope uh, listeners again, if you want to listen to Jeff, he's on the classic cars club podcast. You have your blogs. Talk, what are the two blogs? Again, you have one DC comics guy, DC comics guy and classic club. Yep. So two different type things. One that falls right in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about with this show. And the other one, it's very close to it because it's, you're talking about pre-crisis DC work and you're talking about Eclipso right now. I think that falls into um, monster kid radio type turf. And uh, also we belong dead. If you're not getting that series, you know, it's it, yes, it is pricey, but those books are extremely thick. <laughs> That's, yeah, the design on them is incredible. The art, the color, I'm, I am proud to be involved with those. And I call it a book. I know it's, a ma- it's listed as a magazine, but to me, it's, it's, it's as thick as a normal book. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And, and contributors like yourself that are doing it for the love of getting those articles out there so people can hear that stuff and do that different research. And your Vincent Price stuff was excellent. So people should really you know, seek out We Belong Dead if you're not already. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you thought of me, and uh, I, I would do it anytime. So, Derek, if you need need it again, I'm right here, right here in Minneapolis. Give me a call. Steve, you too. Thank you, sir. And, Derek, as always, I hope everything's going well with you unpacking and the move. And, um, you know, get yourself in there. Take your time. Get yourself settled in. You know, there's a lot of us out here to, you know, just want to make sure you got everything going. We enjoy your show. We all love what you're doing. 
and we want you to keep doing it for a long time to go. So just, you know, stay strong, stay positive. You got this, man. <laughs>